quit my job this morning. I don't want to work no more. I ain't working for no $5 an hour. Yeah. Fuck McDonald's and Taco Bay. Yo, that modern day slavery Hell no. is knocking on my front door. I don't fit in the corporate whoa, world, whoa. man. Get you a big fat sack of yayo. Can't see my kids, can't see my wife. Yeah. Can't see a way to control my doggone love. Hey man, break it down for all these super tired pencil Afro man talking about something we all know and uh, and hate, which is wage slavery. Anybody who's got a job is essentially working within the slave um, paradigm, the slave model. You 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 sell your time, time you'll never get back, time that is precious and very finite. Uh, none of us know how much we've got, but we're selling it for a price and who sets the price and how's the price get set and is that price even approaching anything that we could possibly call fair i don't think so and today's guest doesn't think so either uh he's the head of the i think it's the work less party and the author of a book called workers of the world relax you're gonna dig this one um but before we get into that that song is called Fuck McDonald's and Taco Bell, and it's Afro Man. Check it out. He's very good. My other favorite Afro Man song is, I think it's called Mississippi. Oh, very funky tune. But before we get into uh, bad-mouthing business, let's take care of some business ourselves here. First of all, uh, last episode I talked about Club W, and I hadn't tried it yet. They kindly sent me three bottles of wine. I tried two of them last night, and I've got to tell you, they sucked. Um, I'm sorry, Club W, but I want my listeners to know that uh, if you haven't signed up for it yet, um, maybe you don't want to, because based on the two, three bottles, two of the three bottles they sent me, uh, I'm not impressed. So. Uh, I sort of threw that uh, sponsorship ad, whatever it was, the the little thing I did last week. I threw it out there. Um, I told you I hadn't tried it yet, but I just want to make sure you guys know um, I did try it and I don't like it. So uh, this episode is definitely not brought to you by Club W. Uh, Maybe their other stuff's good. I don't know. If you've tried it, let me know. If If you have a good experience with them, let me know. Wine is so subjective, you know, um, but I, after living in Spain for 20 years, it's not that I know a wonderful wine from a terrible wine necessarily, but I know, I think, a complex, interesting wine from a wine that tastes like water with some, you know, flavoring added to it. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, uh, I just want to keep this all uh, authentic and no bullshit here. So this episode is, however, brought to you by Extreme Restraints. Oh, yeah. You know about Extreme Restraints. Don't pretend you don't. Uh, ExtremeRestraints.com. Save 20% on your entire order if you use the discount code SUMMERSEX. That's right. SUMMERSEX. Extreme Restraints has everything from very vanilla stuff like your basic condoms, massage oils, body jewelry, etc., to your kinkier fare. Um, you can really let your imagination run wild. Thousands of products to choose from. They'll send it to you in a discreet package, so none of the weird embarrassment of 
talking to the fat guy behind the corner about the handcuffs. Um, if you're having trouble finding intimate products you want at an affordable price, please check these guys out. ExtremeRestraints.com. Summer sex at checkout for your 20% off. Dig it. Very nice. This is, uh, <laughs> I just noticed. Okay, uh, I'm standing at a desk that was given to me by uh, a guy named uh, Justin at Ergo Depot which is um, a company here in Portland that uh, puts together ergonomic furniture. Really nice stuff. This is um, a desk that's got a, a really strong electrical motor built into it, and you can program four different height settings. So you just push the little button, and it raises up, and it can lift 350 pounds. So you can have all sorts of crap on your desk, a few monitors, whatever, and it'll rise up to your standing height and your sitting height and your intermediate height and all these different heights. Anyway, I, I just made a note I wanted to mention on the podcast, and and I saw that the way I spelled Ergo Depot was um, I I put a T in Ergot Depot, and I think the reason I put the T there is Ergot was um, was a fungus that grew on rye in the medieval period, and it's believed to have uh, it's a hallucinogen. And it's believed to have uh, possibly caused the uh, outbreaks of witch burning and, and all sorts of insane behavior that swept across uh, medieval Europe um, repeatedly because people found that the, the years when that craziness happened tended to follow a particularly rainy year. So the, the theory is that the rye that was being stored was damp because of the rains and this uh, ergo grew on the rye and got mixed into the bread. And so everybody was tripping out on this stuff and had no idea why they were seeing, uh, you know, ghosts and, and uh, phantasms. What's the word phantasm? I'm thinking in Spanish. Fantasmico, fantasmagorico. Anyway, Ergo Depot. I'm talking very tangentially here. Ergo Depot, E-R-G-O, no T, Depot, D-E-P-O-T. Check them out if you're looking for um, chairs and desks and things that where you can work and be comfortable and be good to your body. Check them out, particularly, I would say, if you own a small business and you want to uh, treat your employees well. And consequently, I think you'll probably have much higher productivity and happier employees and so on. It's It's good stuff. I've been using this desk just for a few days and he also gave me a couple chairs to check out um and uh my back feels great i mean i'm i'm sitting straight because the height i'm not slouching i'm not slipping down i'm like and it's not that i'm consciously trying to improve my posture it's just that the way the thing is set up i am so that's my kind of um, of improvement where you can't help it and you don't have to think about it. That's that's the kind of stuff I like to do. Anyway, so it's an unofficial sponsorship. Uh, they just gave me this desk because they like the podcast, but I'm sharing it with you. This is good stuff. It's a good company. They're good people. So if you're in the market for that sort of thing, check them out. Ergo Depot or Depot. I'm not, how, do you, how do you say that name, uh, that word? It's a French word, Depot. It's like Colbert Rapport. Ergo Depot. We're also sponsored by Ting, T-I-N-G. Check them out if you've got a mobile phone. Uh, they are the no bullshit, transparent mobile phone servicing company. If you don't have a phone, you can buy one through them. 
Uh, you, if you do have a phone already, you can probably migrate it over depending on the model and so on. Um, they're uh, fantastic. Their billing is super clear. You only pay for what you use. 98% according to Ting, which as I say, they're, they're pretty straight up. So I think they're probably right. 98% of people would save money using Ting. You're not locked into anything. There's no long-term commitments. You pay for what you get. It's a pretty perfect relationship. Um, I've been using them since uh, Rogan turned me on to them a while back, and I'm very happy with them. Uh, saving money, and you know, I get a, I get the phone outright, and then save the money every month, and it works out very well. I've got Cassie on them. I got some someone on my sister, my mother, somebody's on them. Anyway, Ting. If you go to sexatdawn.ting.com, you get 25% or $25 off uh, your sign-up fees in first month or whatever. So sexatdawn.ting.com. Check them out. And last but not least, and I've been saving this one because I'm going to do something special here, uh, Audible. Now, here's the thing about Audible. You can get your first book free. Um, Here, let me read their copy. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash, what is it? Slash sex at dawn. Yeah. Audibletrial.com slash sex at dawn. Over 150,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, MP3 player, or streaming through your computer. Um, Anyway, what I want to do today is I was looking through Audible and you know, because they, they suggest that you recommend a book that you like and whatever. And I came across one of my favorite novels of all time called At Play in the Fields of the Lord by Peter Matheson, who died just a couple weeks ago. Now, Peter Matheson was one badass motherfucker. He was a really interesting guy, wrote great books, dozens probably of books. I don't know exactly how many. Um, I've read several of them, The Snow Leopard, A Play of play in the fields of the Lord. Um, he wrote a trilogy, uh, novels that took place in the Everglades in the 1880s and nineties. Uh, I think it was called searching for Mr. Watson was one of them. Um, uh, he also wrote great, uh, nonfiction stuff. The snow leopards nonfiction won the national book award. That's about trekking through Nepal into the Tibetan uh, territories with um, a biologist named George Schaller. Fantastic book. Anyway, really interesting guy, adventurer, intellectual, um, all around fascinating dude. And A Play in the Fields of the Lord is one of my favorite books of all time. It particularly interests me because uh, it's about first contact between, um, you know, modern Western people and a Stone Age tribe. And it's I, th- I think it's the only novel, well, Clan of the Cave Bear got into some of this stuff in a prehistoric realm, I think. But this is a modern novel that gets into the heads of the Stone Age people and doesn't treat them as glorified animals. It treats them as human beings. And he gets into their relationships and their spiritual feelings and and it's just I, I don't even want to tell you about the story because it's just too fantastic it's it's like it's as if a guy goes back in time uh 
you know, it's that fantasy we all have. Like if you could go back 100,000 years or 50,000 years or whatever, what would you take with you, you know? And maybe you take a lighter or you take a pistol or you, you take a, you know, whatever, an MP3 player or whatever just to impress the people back then. Well, this guy actually does that. He parachutes out of an airplane, lands in the jungle, takes off all his clothes, walks naked into a village of uncontacted people. That's how this novel begins. It's fucking mind-blowing. Anyway, so uh, to give you a taste of both this fantastic novel and the Audible.com experience, I thought I'd play a little bit of it for you since I'm messing around with the speakers and Afro Man and all that. So uh, I'm going to play a little bit of the sample that you'll find on Audible.com. And uh, it's at play in the fields of the Lord. I hope you dig it. It was still early. And somehow he would have to pass the rest of the evening, for he had slept most of the day. He had had this woman, quietly and quickly. And because he made no more of it than it was, the woman liked him. She tried to communicate her own loneliness and even a haggard femininity. He had listened politely, but now his silence had defeated her, and she would go. Hasta luego, hombre, the woman murmured. She was still searching his face like someone awaiting word. Hasta luego, he said. So long as he kept moving, he would be all right. For men like himself, the ends of the earth had this great allure that one was never asked about a past or future, but could live as freely as an animal, close to the gut, and day by day by day. Day by day by day. There you go. If you want to hear the rest of that novel, uh, you can get it free on Audible. So audibletrial.com slash sexadon get it free support the podcast rock and roll uh today's guest is conrad schmidt <laughs> conrad schmidt as i mentioned uh earlier on is the uh he's from out south africa actually and uh he's the uh, one of the founders of the work less party he lives in british columbia and i just googled i just um looked him up on wikipedia and found that he also created the world naked bike ride protest um which just i saw last week here in portland by chance i was sitting in a in a place having a beer with a friend of mine my buddy dave and we heard some screaming out on the street and we went out and there were all these naked people riding by on their bicycles and we stood there for 20 minutes watching thousands of people ride by laughing screaming dancing singing and finally it was like well you know you've seen a couple thousand naked bodies you've seen them all i think um so we went back in and finished our beers but Interesting, uh, interesting protest, and I had no idea that Conrad was involved in that until I just saw that just a second ago. So um, I hope you enjoy this. I'm uh, going to be leaving in a few minutes to go record a follow-up to the wildly popular podcast I did with Andrew Gurevich. So we're going to be going over there for dinner tonight, and before we uh, get down to dinner, Andrew and I are going to pick up where we left off last time. So that'll be coming soon. Uh, anyway, I've been going on for 15 minutes here. 
that's plenty of time for an intro. Hope you enjoy this conversation and uh, appreciate all the support for the podcast and the great emails and the t-shirts people are buying and all the stuff that's happening. So thanks for your support. Hope you enjoy it. Bye. Baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you. Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Think about your reputation Try to meet an expectation Okay, I'm here with Conrad Schmidt uh, Originally from South Africa That's I'm me Detecting um, But now in Vancouver Are you the... Uh, do you have uh, some sort of leadership position in the uh, Work Less Party? Uh, no, it's just a bunch of misfits. <laughs> uh, uh, as, as behooves. Pretty yeah. much with a name like Work Less Party. Yeah. You're, one of your books has the best name of any book in the universe, I think. Workers of the World Relax. I love People that. People love that book. It's a really, it's, it's, it sort of sums it all up, you know? Like, I, I, I thought of years ago, I thought of this idea of writing a self-help book called mm -hmm. zero steps to optimal fitness and it would be That's uh, a nice title yeah yeah i still might write it sometime we'll see um but the idea is that a lot of the things people do to increase their fitness is counterproductive mm -hmm. you know and the idea came to me i was in manhattan and uh i was on my way to some meeting or something and i was walking up uh, fifth avenue Mm -hmm. And this guy went running past me in his jogging shorts at 7 a.m. And I thought, that guy is doing everything wrong. You know? Sure is. He probably slept five hours instead of six or seven so he could get up early and go for his run. Mm -hmm. He's running in polluted air, sucking those toxins and all those microparticles down into the deepest part of his lungs that are most susceptible to uh, you know, cancer and all sorts of horribleness. He's... He's promoting, he's like stressing himself out to fuck up his health. Uh, and don't forget the knees. Oh, yeah. The knees the on concrete. concrete. Yeah, uh, yeah. Knees have only got a limited amount of uh, distance that they can do. Once you use those things up, you're toast. Yeah. Have you uh, read? Another something that's even yeah. funnier is the people in, uh, in the gym building up that huge muscle mass. Yeah. Because one, they'll never ever use it because they probably got all office jobs yeah two it really is an increase in mass so you're putting more stress on your heart it tenses up your body so you lose all your flexibility right and uh doesn't do anything all well, that work and they're probably taking some sort of supplements you know so there's nutritional Even the ones that weirdness aren't taking it yeah uh, it's like what are you going to do with all that stuff? Are you going to go lift something real heavy? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, my wife calls them lobsters. Lobsters? Because they're all upper body. Yeah, they've got no flexibility. Yeah. yeah. That's a very American thing. I don't know what it's like in South Africa. Maybe it's something with our shared British heritage. But in Spain, you don't see that sort of upper body thing. I guess because everyone plays football, uh, soccer. So it's more the athletes aren't seen as these top-heavy you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger-looking guys. Mm, that's, uh, it's been a while. South Africa's probably totally different. Yeah. What, what's happening in South Africa sports-wise? I know there is a soccer, some soccer culture. They're crazy about rugby. Rugby. It's all rugby. Yeah, the rugby spring box. Rugby that's that. right, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Well, anyway, we didn't come here. I didn't come here to talk about sports. I'm happy to do it if you want. But uh, you've got a lot more interesting things going on. And actually, there's a lot of overlap with um, my research and what you're doing. Because I'm writing a book now called Civilized to Death, which is an... I love that title. Yeah. It's an indictment of the modern world in many ways. And one of the things I'm looking at is this very weird and artificial um, sense of work Mm -hmm. that's sold to us as if it were natural. Mm -hmm. You know, the dignity of labor and, you know, the pride of work and all that, which has never set well with me. Has it always been an issue for you? Or I know you worked for eight years with a software company. Is that right? Yeah, programmer for many years. And you specialized in human-machine interaction. Mm -hmm. Interface. Interface. That's what we called it. Uh Which is... What? Is that a software thing? Are we talking about operating systems? Or? Basically how human beings interact with large production facilities and robots. Oh, uh, okay. The software I was working on would produce pretty much everything that was used in factories across the world to make stuff, cigarettes, uh, cars, you name it. Um, and that's kind of what got me into the whole concept of trying to understand the Jevons paradox because there I was... And I felt kind of bad about my ecological footprint. And um, so I said to myself, i got to do something to reduce my ecological footprint. And the first thing I did was I gave up driving my, uh, my Jeep, my SUV. And I thought that was something that was good. And, I, and in many ways it was, because I was cycling to work now. I was reading more on the train and the bus. Where was this? Uh, in Vancouver. Oh, you were in Vancouver already. And this is what got me into the thinking. Because, you see, I got this surprise at the, at, um, at the end of the month, which was my paycheck. I had 25% more money. And every month I had 25% more income. And I said, what do I do with this money? And the first thing I thought, well, maybe I should buy a video camera or maybe a television set or something, or maybe a bigger home or... But every one of those things has an ecological cost that's pretty much equal to the Jeep. In many cases, even more. Like if you went traveling. Or you went traveling. No matter what you spend that money on, it has an ecological cost. Even a masseuse who could then, you spend on the masseuse who then goes to Europe. Right. You see, that's the rebound effect. And I figured, well, so what am I going to do? How do I solve this problem? Because I really wanted to reduce my ecological footprint. And I solved it by walking into my manager's office and I said, how about I don't show up here on a Friday and you don't pay me? See, I turned that 25% into more leisure time. And I got involved in communities and arts, formed the Workless Party, wrote two books, made several films. The quality of my life dramatically increased. And it got me thinking about this concept of how we often think that we can cut something out, like get rid of your car or, or something, and that'll reduce your ecological footprint. And I started researching it more, and it doesn't. You see, our ecological footprint is much more than just climate change. There are many things going on. We're destroying the oceans, we're chopping down the forests, we're polluting with tons of plastics. It's a never-ending list. The cause of this is 
consumerism and our never-ending addiction to growth. And it doesn't matter if you go and buy some green product because most green products, uh, they're not really real. They're just some type of marketing ploy mm -hmm. to get people to consume more. The real issue behind this all is our addiction to growth, right. never-ending growth. And when did that start historically? That's a relatively recent phenomenon, isn't it? Uh, no, no. Uh, I mean, as far as an, uh, an economic concept. It's something that's always going on because growth is a consequence of efficiency. Right. That's the driving impetus behind growth. So that's productivity. Efficiency. Right. If you make something more efficient, you end up... Let me give you an example. If something results... This is the Jevons paradox. If you make something more labor-efficient, which pretty much is all efficiency, you land up in the situation where you have a mandate on the economy. Either you consume more or you have a recession. Mm. And it happens throughout history. Like, let me give you a few examples. Um, the textile... Uh, 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 James Hargreaves, 17... I think 80, 1784, comes up with this marvelous new fantastic invention... And his invention is the spinning jenny. What it does is it spins yarn four, five, six times faster than a human being can spin it. And you'd think that this would be something great. But what was the consequence? Well, a lot of yarn spinners lost their jobs. And that was really the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Right. And... And it, it did cause quite a stir. It changed the social fabric. Eventually, all the yarn spinners, well, they protested and they smashed James Hargreaves' machines and you have the Luddites of yeah. the time right. smashing machines and the British government passes a law that if you harm a machine, you get the death sentence. It was at the point where you had the Luddites versus the entire British army. They were determined to smash machines. This was not a small little uprising. It was quite impressive. But what eventually got England out of its little uh, recession was wild, extravagant consumerist ideas such as changing your underwear weekly. And eventually people started to consume more. You see, that's the impetus of growth, is efficiency. If you make something more efficient, it means that you now have to consume more or you end up in a recession. That's the driving impetus of growth itself. Uh, we'll jump up a little bit further in time. The Great Depression. Henry Ford comes up with this amazing idea and this amazing invention. He didn't invent the production line. He invented the electrification of the production line. Mm. And in just two, three years, he could produce twice as many cars. And then it just doubled and doubled. With less labor, he was, he was getting rid of employees at the same time as his output was doubling. Right. And what he said to the, the rest of the American industry and says, look at me, we can all do this. Electrify your assembly process. Ka-chunk, 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 big machines coming along, making everything that you can imagine. The consequence was that you now had fewer people required to make the same amount of goods. And you ended up with the depression because people weren't consuming as much as they were able to produce. Henry and Ford 
invented mass production, but he did not invent mass consumption. But wasn't uh, the, weren't the first production lines like in 1904, 1905, somewhere around there? That was the... the... Oh, oh, production lines are nothing new. But I'm talking about Henry Ford. Uh, produ- the no, Model they, they T. 1914. Uh, 1914. Okay. So the the depression hit 15 years later. I mean, I, I would argue that there's a lot uh, a lot going on in the the financial sector that led to the depression. And this may have been the, the production, the efficiencies you're talking about certainly would have had a role. But when you say speculation and and uh, you know, wild leveraging in the stock market was as much a cause of this as anything else. Oddly enough, those are modern theories to explain the Great Depression. At the time, it was that was the explanation. Later on, economists say, oh, no, it had nothing to do with efficiency. Efficiency, you just consume more. But you see, there were several things happening. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but also the consuming war, I, I understand your argument there. But what about opening up foreign markets? What about selling those cars to, to Europeans? You don't really need the Americans to, to buy more and more cars if you can sell your surplus if to you can. Europeans. Yeah. Mass consumption takes a little, little bit longer to invent. Yeah. You see, they invented mass production. And back in those days, our great-parents and great-grandparents, they were quite a little, they were quite the frugal bunch. Right. They really were. Like sure. a chest of drawers was they fixed things, things they and they fixed away, things yeah. and most of them lived in small spaces where they couldn't really have more stuff they saved things they didn't spend things right. um, and also believe it or not the cities were actually quite congested with cars at the time and many people didn't even need them because they had the interurbans all the cities had the interurbans mm. so you could get anywhere faster than if you had a car and it wasn't just that they didn't, and there was also the, another important thing, is that salaries and wages weren't increasing as fast as production. Yes, you can produce all the stuff, but they weren't paying their employees the, to be able to afford them. Right. So there were two things. One, they didn't have the cash, and two, they didn't need it. <laughs> so that's the fundamental basic. Right. Yes, everything came down like a house of cards, and each time the house of cards will fall down if the fundamentals are flawed. If you look at over time, I mean, even now, the real fundamental that's slowing the world economy, it's the Internet. Mm. You see, the Internet makes things incredibly efficient, super efficient. You now no longer have to build a big department store and stock it with goodies. Basically, you just go on your computer, order it, comes from a warehouse somewhere. You don't need salespeople. You Mm. don't need any charming assistants. Um... Banking, you don't have to go in the line. You just dit, 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 dit. Yeah. You see, that means that we can do so much more with less labor. The consequence is you now have to grow the economy. The efficiency puts both the mandate and the ability. The ability is that you now have so many unemployed people looking for jobs. That's your ability. But the mandate is if you don't, you are in a very volatile situation. Politically. Politically, because yeah. unemployed people, I mean... We all know, like, I mean, during the Great Depression, the Communist Party was getting like 7% of the vote. Yeah. Uh, things get very turbulent. See, it's the efficiency that puts the mandate to create growth. And what we're facing at the moment in the environmental movement is a lot of the things that they're saying are that we need to make things more efficient. But it doesn't work that way. As a way of the to reasons. conserve energy. Yeah. Let me give you an example. Yeah. The primary fuel source not that long ago used to be wood. Wood. You used to have 
chop down a forest and there you got your fuel. Along comes coal, which based on our definition of green, twice as efficient as wool, as, twice as efficient as wood. Same mass, twice the amount of energy, and you don't have to chop down your forests. Consequence, does our ecological footprint decrease? No, it grows. Because you have the Industrial Revolution, you can you got more efficiency. You can grow the economy. Mm. Petroleum, twice as efficient, twice as efficient as coal, and also less sulfury, less mercury, mercury in the air. Easily transportable. Easily transportable, twice Liquid. as efficient. Yeah. Our definition of green, each one of these fuel sources should have been a green miracle. Yeah. Now we have an environmental movement saying we need more efficient cars, we need more efficient buildings, we need more efficient aeroplanes. And we have developers and uh, engineers say, hey, this fits with us. Yes, let's build bigger, more efficient aeroplanes, bigger, more efficient cars, bigger, more efficient boats, bigger, more efficient cities. And the consequence will be what it's always been. The efficiency puts both the mandate and the ability of growth and it's the growth that destroys the ecology. Yeah, I see what you're saying. It's so, so in terms of energy, you're saying it's, it's pretty much the same cycle you experienced in your own personal life when you increased your efficiency in terms of getting to work and, and then you end up with more surplus and then you put that surplus into something else. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing you're saying with energy. You find a more efficient fuel source like oil and then the economy just grows to it's the take identi- advantage of it's that. It's the identical concept from both a macro and a, ma- a micro, uh, micro perspective. From right. the micro, the consequence is I have more income, I spend that money. Yeah. It's uh, everywhere, this cycle. I mean, I'm thinking uh, there's a, what's the line? Uh, uh, the amount of time it takes to do a job expands based on how much time is available. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And we've both worked under deadline writing books. That's how it is. You know, if, if the book's due in October, well, I guess it'll get done in November, maybe. But if it's not due till next April, then it'll get done then. It's like whatever time is available. So we sort of... You can see that in biology as well, right? This the species expands to uh, to utilize whatever resources are ava- available in its ecological niche. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I see where you're going with this, but I'm still having trouble. And these are all new ideas for me, and I'm not an economic thinker, so pardon me if I say it's, anything. It is a little confusing because basically you have it's to think counterintuitive. Of you have to think of sustainability completely the opposite to. Uh, everything is in reverse. Right. Okay. So, so okay. Let's work through this. So we say uh, a more efficient, a fleet of airplanes that are twice as efficient as the airplanes that we currently have increases your ecological footprint because people are going to travel more because ticket prices will go down and there will be more. It. It's the same. The Germans paradox can be looked at from a micro and a macro perspective. Let's right. go through. The macro. Suppose you make a plane that uses half the amount of energy. That energy saving is fuel. Fuel that has to be drilled. You have to get machines. There's a whole industry of people that have jobs supplying the fuel for that airplane. You now make the airplane more efficient. That means there are less jobs supplying that industry. So you now created a situation where you have to grow the economy to replace those jobs. Right. And that's 
the issue is you've now created both impetus and the ability for growth. Now, this presupposes stable or increasing population. If we have decreasing population, then those, that last loss of jobs isn't as much of an issue, right? Because you have fewer people looking for jobs. Yeah, in, in, yes, basically, it, it, yeah, if you have, from an ecological perspective, there's two concepts. One is the each individual, how much they consume, and the other one is, um, is how many people right. they are consuming. Right. I'm looking at from the perspective of how much each individual consumes. And if you add any efficiency anywhere in the system, you'll end up with increase in consumption. The biggest, of course, example is a bicycle versus an SUV. Yeah. Most people, which is better for the environment? Right. Bicycle or SUV? Well, I've just given you an example of where I switched from an SUV to a bicycle but it didn't decrease my ecological footprint. Right, but it could have. If you took it that surplus have. money and put it in the bank. Bank, the worst, because they lend it out <laughs> four times. Oh, right. Okay. And even so if they use it a, to leverage. Even and, yeah. if it's a bank that says they're green, uh-huh. they ain't green. I can promise you that. Because they're looking for returns. Van City, yeah. they invest in the tar sands. And yet they Do they? Yeah, afraid so. Oh, shit. <laughs> Anything that says it's green... Be very, very suspicious. The bank, you can't reduce your ecological footprint by putting it in the bank. So there are ways you can reduce your ecological footprint. Buy land and let it sit there. No. No, that doesn't work either? It doesn't. Shit, I'm going to be even more depressed and cynical at the end of this interview. I didn't think it was possible. (laughs) Oh, no, no, you don't have to be depressed or cynical because it's very easy to solve. Oh, okay. Very easy. So what do you do? So if, let's say I go, look, I haven't had a job since the mid-90s, so I'm not a good example of this. But let's say somebody with a job goes to their boss and says proposes what you do and said what you did and said okay how about i come in four days a week reduce uh reduce my pay to some extent but not completely so i've got some surplus money or they trade in their suv for a bike or whatever what do they do with money what do they do with their surplus money that's actually good for the environment well there's one great thing you can do with your surplus money is you could tear it up (laughs) <laughs> anyway, Burn it. But that's not exactly, it that still doesn't help because yeah. um, uh, they're just really printing more. You're not really reducing it. Um, but uh, let me, let me the, the problem is very, very simple to solve. Uh-huh. One is you re- take that efficiency gain in the economy and you reduce the hours of labor. By whatever amount. I mean, there are a lot of countries that have a reduced work week. Norway, Denmark, Germany. So many countries have a reduced work week. If you be, and this was a Keynesian idea. Keynes was the one who said, the efficiencies that you have in the system, you've got to do something with them. You can't just grow forever. You have to start. And he was the one who started saying, reduce the work week. It ain't rocket science. Hmm. Another thing you can do is counterbalance the efficiencies with labor-intensive activities that I'd say are inefficiencies. Anything that's labor, you increase the labor cost in certain areas. One way you can do it, organic farming. More labor is required to produce an organic table. You can't use tomato because you can't use as many pesticides. Um, You can't use as many machines. Mm. You're adding an increase in labor cost. Another one you can do, 
more teachers for a set number of students. Currently, it's, what, one teacher for 30 kids up here? It's ridiculous. No, make the educational process more enjoyable. Have more teachers for, let's say, 1, one to 15. You now have people that are employed, but you're not increasing your production. You're putting it into quality of life aspects. You're improving people's quality of life. And that, another one... But where's the money come from to supply these extra teachers? Well, let me go uh, one step more. There's one other one that's really interesting. is healthcare. Stop treating people like cars on the assembly line. Have more social interaction. Spend more time. More healthcare workers for a set number of patients. Mm -hmm. We're improving people's lives. Where does the money come from? It's more of an issue of where does the money go? If we have what we're currently doing is a free trade, um, uh, complete capitalist, uh, whichever country is the most competitive that has the strategic advantage, there is, if, say, you have a country um, that says, well, you know what, we'll just pay everybody 2 $3 an hour, we're not going to put any environmental restrictions. That country is where all the money goes, all the jobs go. And the countries that are, have this uh, exodus of cash, they're now in a financially strapped situation because they can't really compete. They can't produce the same goods because they get produced elsewhere. Um, in a free trade situation, you can't afford anything except to be as competitive and ruthless as possible. If we now start putting in restrictions and countries that exploit labor or countries that have lax environmental standards, higher import duties, you now have a situation where the economy can reflect more of our personal values and quality of life because we're not struggling and we're not competing with the most unethical um, right, the dictators and, in the world. Yeah. But if what we're going to be in a competition with other countries that don't have any type of ethical background in their environmental social justice, well, we're just really following suit. Right, it's a race to the bottom in terms. It's a race of human to the bottom. Rights, uh, environmental protection, everything. Exactly, and that's what's Every- happening now with all the the maquilladoras in Mexico that shifted from Detroit, leaving Detroit bankrupt and bereft. And so they can spew out their poisons in Mexico more cheaply. Well, that was in many ways an invention of uh, the United States. Could you, are you interested in that story? Which of the maquilladoras and yes. NAFTA and all that? Yeah, yes. sure, sure. Okay, so it's the same efficiency issue. Mm-hmm. The same efficiency issue. Uh, now, this is super interesting because during the Great Depression, Roosevelt... Uh, He's got, he says, uh, uh, one of the inventions Henry Ford comes up with is the mass-produced tractor. Mm-hmm. Amazing! You could now have one farmer, he could farm multiple farms, he didn't need employees. He just sit his tractor and vroom, 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 up, down, vroom, 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 this way. And millions lost their jobs in urban agriculture, and they went to the cities. This is part of the Great Depression. Uh-huh. So Roosevelt says, how do I solve this problem? Because people are unemployed. One of the things Roosevelt did, and it is really quite incredible, he increased the price of food. This is during a Great Depression. 
And the way he did it is he put restrictions on farm size so that you wouldn't get as much benefit from mechanization. And this, in many ways, preserved the, um, the rural identity of the United States for many, many years. Like, mm. you'd have schools and farms and small farms and mom-and-pop farms, and there was neighborhoods out there besides the big cities. There were people, there was community. It was a whole different world. Yeah. Because of Roosevelt. He wanted a rural population. And you still see these policies in places like France. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so 1973 comes and um, Nixon hires a new guy on the job, Secretary of Agriculture, and his name is Earl Bunce. And he says, you know what, this is silly. What we're going to do is we're going to get rid of all these restrictions and we are going to make agriculture as efficient as possible. So big, so the farms got bought up and the mechanization with gigantic monster machines that never exist. And millions lost their jobs again and moved and outside homes. and their homes. Yeah. But now there was an interesting problem because the United States was doubling their food part and then tripling their food production. What were they going to do with all this food? Without collapsing world prices and, and commodities like corn. and Yeah. So what they did was they dumped the food on third world countries. Yeah. Like Mexico. Yeah. So communities were no longer able to compete. Like you could not make corn faster than America could bring it to you. You could not have, right. you could not grow, you could not have chickens or anything because all, and as the American rural society collapsed, so did rural communities around the world that didn't have the strength to say no to the United States. Yeah, how do you say no to super cheap corn? Exactly. It seems like, again, it's counterintuitive. It seems like a good thing. It's a gift. Oh, thank you, Monsanto. It's not such a gift. And so all these people then moved to the Macadores where they now make Nikes and the rest of it. Something else happens in the United States is that people start consuming more meat. They didn't eat that much because meat used to be really expensive. But now that you have cheap grain, cheap corn, you could now have more cheap beef right. and beef requires more of a labor cost to uh, more of an input to it but people are not genetically designed to be eating this quantity of meat so it has its costs and certainly not meat that's uh, grown only eating corn right because the cows aren't designed to eat corn Right, all day, mm-hmm. only corn. So we get we get like a double whammy there because the animal that we're eating is already distorted and needs all these antibiotics and all this you know chemical crap to keep cost, it alive. Cost. Yeah, yeah. And all of these things come from making something more efficient. If we want to solve our mm. social problems and our environmental problems, we have to go the opposite and make things more labor intensive. Or another way, make things more inefficient. Sounds crazy, but... No, but it makes a lot of sense. I mean, when you go through the examples, the the thing is, I think, for me, it always comes back to population, right? A a lot of the research that I've done and the the book I wrote was about uh, prehistoric humans before agriculture. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, agriculture is really the first efficiency, right? It's saying Mm -hmm. instead of walking around finding food... Why don't we just sit here and grow it? 
You know, it seemed like a great idea at the time, I'm sure, to, to whomever, because, you know, this is one of the questions I get from people all the time is, you know, they say, uh, if agriculture was such a disaster, why did we do it? Why did our ancestors choose it? Which supposes that somebody made a choice, which, of course, isn't really how history works normally. Um, have you ever read uh, Marshall Salins? The, no, I haven't. Oh, uh, you would you would uh, enjoy. He, he has a book call, or an essay called, I think it's called the 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 first affluent society or something like that, and it's about looking at these um, these measures of quality of life, like amount of leisure time, nutritional uh, quality of the food. Um, amount of time uh, spent in, in community, the, the prevalence of violence in societies and so on. And he, he compares the, mo- the modern world to pre-agricultural societies, mm-hmm. um, which again seems ridiculous to say because there's this Hobbesian view of pre-agricultural societies that, uh, you know, life was solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. That's complete bullshit. That's propaganda meant to prop up the modern world. And also when you look at uh, one of the things that people say, look at our longevity rates. And I'm saying, you've got a population where they're taking antidepressants, they're depressed, and they're sitting in front of a television set. Yeah, well, and it goes beyond that. There's a chapter in Sex at Dawn where we talk about this longevity thing. The, The longevity argument is based upon statistical nonsense. They say the average human lifespan has doubled since prehistory, right? Which gets translated into uh, someone who was 30 or 35 years old was old Mm -hmm. 20,000 years ago. That's not true. Our species lives into its late 60s, early 70s in the wild with no medical interventions. That's our sort of biologically programmed lifespan. The, the way they came up with this doubling of the human lifespan is that they're looking at archaeological sites where a lot of the skeletons were infants. Now, a lot of people died. A lot of babies died, some through infectious diseases, others through infanticide, because population levels had to stay steady. So if, um, if a mother had twins, for example, they'd normally sacrifice both the twins. Or if a child was born uh, that was handicapped in any way or, or didn't seem vigorous and healthy enough, that child would be uh, sacrificed. And that sounds horrible to us, but... Most hunter-gatherer societies don't see a newborn infant as a human being. In fact, a lot of societies don't consider a, a baby to be a human until they speak. Speaking is what makes them a human being. So it's really morally or ethically no different from abortion. So it's postnatal abortion, essentially. But in any case, whatever the ethical considerations are, the fact is they find all these baby skeletons, they add them into the the calculation, the mathematical calculation, and then you look at the fact that when you judge the age of a skeleton that's been found, you do it with um, what's called um, uh, dental eruption. It's where the teeth come out of the jawbone, right? 
and the teeth stop coming out of the jawbone somewhere in the, in the mid-30s. So you can't tell when you find a skeleton that's 30,000 years old, you can't tell how old that person was when they died beyond 35. Under 35, you can there are five-year increments that archaeologists use. But above that age, they just write 35 plus. Interesting. So a journalist who looks at these reports and sees, you know, a bunch of babies and some people in their teens and, and then nobody over 35 plus. They don't understand. They're not archaeologists. They don't understand that that guy could have been 70, and you wouldn't know. So this is all based on misinformation, right? But the reason it's persisted and become such a popular meme, I believe, is that it it makes us feel it's Mm self-congratulatory. And we love to think we live in the best possible time and the best possible world, right? Which we definitely aren't. Um, <laughs> something else that I think is interesting talking about population yeah. is if you compare, uh, if you look at uh, uh, the state in India, Kerala. Yeah, I've that? been there. Yeah, Kerala in the south. Uh, the population Beautiful growth place. is so much less than the rest of India. And a good question is why is the population so much less? The population growth. And I see the reason being is that you have less of a patriarchal society. Mm. In, a, in a country or a state where women have more rights and can say, you know what, I'm not particularly keen on having sure. 12, 13 kids and being chained to the stove feeding them. And you know what, uh, I'm more comfortable with like the one or twos. And where women have more rights to get jobs, get careers. And in a, more of a patriarchal society, where it's the man that said, oh, the women, they make food, they make children, and they delegated and forced into this role. Those are the countries where you have the highest population growth. Yeah. Here in the West, in Canada, I mean, you have declining population uh, if it wasn't for immigration. Um, Germany, same thing happening. In countries where women have more rights, they are less inclined to want the huge, difficult-to-sustain families. Our population growth has probably a lot to do with uh, women's rights. Yeah, no, I agree. I think, the, the, I think it's quite well demonstrated that the variable most associated with reduction in population growth is education of women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so exactly. It's, it's, and that's why the Taliban is shutting down all the schools. You know, it's a power, power play for women. Yeah. It's, should be, it's no great rocket science. Who wants to be trying to breastfeed 12 kids and look after them? Yeah. Well, maybe the guy and the man who conceived the kids because he's not doing the work, but <laughs> yeah. the person that's responsible for taking care of those families is more likely to want a manageable family. Right. Yeah, in, in this in this dialogue of, of efficiency versus quality of life, um, you know, the, there's a very famous uh, account in an anthropological paper where the anthropologist says to this guy, I think he was in um, in Botswana, one of the Kung, you know, the... Kosa? Yeah. Oh, you mean well, Bushman? Yeah. Bushman? Yeah. yeah. Right, uh, that's uh, Namibia. Nam- oh, Namib- Namibia, right. Where they speak with the cliques. Yeah. Uh, Beautiful country, Namibia. Yeah, I've never been there. I'm, I'm going to different. Mozambique in a month. I'm looking what takes you to, to Mozambique? That. My wife's from Mozambique, and we're going there for her daughter's wedding. Which part? 
Uh, we're going to Maputo. We'll be there a few weeks. So may, I hope we'll go north, maybe to the uh, the Mozambique or or. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Uh, it's a really, really beautiful place. Both Mozambique and Namibia are fantastic. And South Africa. Her daughter lives in Cape Town. South Africa is just, most of it's just another big city. Really? Yeah. Mozambique and Namibia. I think Namibia only has two roads. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to take one of those uh, truck trips, you know, where you sleep in the truck for a month and just sort of cruise around through. their big circuits through Southern Africa. I'd, I'd love to do that. I can't do it on this trip, but... But maybe oh, in a well, future Mozambique's a good start. It's so nice over yeah. there. Uh, one day it'll all become developed, but... Well, it is now. I mean, the Chinese are in there buying up everything, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. Sad. But anyway, there was this conversation where the anthropologist said to, to, said to this guy, you know, why, why don't you guys learn to farm, you know? And, and he said, why should I farm all day when there are so many mongongo nuts in the world? Yeah, I mean, that that's really the dialogue. That's what it comes down to. You see in first encounter situations all over the world, throughout history, the hunter-gatherers are you know encountered by the Europeans or the missionaries or whomever, and the hunter-gatherers never want to learn to farm. Now, I'll give you an interesting story, a South African story. Yeah, please. Um, uh, apartheid where it originally comes from, wasn't so much a, a black-white thing. It had to do exactly with what you're talking about. You see, the whites arrive in South Africa and they find all these great resources, diamonds and gold, and it's amazing. But they needed labor. So they go to the indigenous population and they say, well, come work in this mine. We'll give you money. Uh, not interested. Why do I no, need money? And they've yeah. already got it. They've got the beer, they got the sun, they got yeah. they got the good life. And then the whites say, Well, um, we'll give you a gun. And so that okay, they go in the mine for a few months, get the gun, and shoot the next white person that comes along with such a bad idea. <laughs> so what do the whites do? Well, first thing they do is they ban the sale of weapons to uh, to the indigenous population. <laughs> it was not working. Right. They then what they do is they impose a hut tax, which is, which has to be paid in, in money. In money, right? Create a need for the money. It's and the then trick in the book. What they do is they take the land away, so that they don't have any way of earning that money by agriculture. So they can't farm for it, which they were doing as well because mm. they knew how to farm. And their only source of income was to go into the mines. See, apartheid was all about getting cheap labor into the mines, which is one of the big reasons why, even though they've, it still continues in South Africa, is even though uh, they have, it's now equal rights, they still have a need for cheap labor. And a good percentage of the population is exploited mass labor. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that that cycle you're talking about there, that's happened so many times. I mean, I think of the United Fruit Company in mm -hmm. Central America. People are living happily. They're fishing. They're eating fruit. They're, they've got a little garden. They come in, take the land, and say the only way you can uh, get anything to eat is to buy it from our store. And the store doesn't. The stores don't even take like national currency. They only accept United Fruit Company money. Mm -hmm. Right, which is like monopoly money they print up so they can charge whatever the hell they want, and there's only one place you can earn the money, which is working for us. The whole thing, yeah. Belgium, Congo, Cuba, it's all that's it's all the, the story. same. It's yeah. all the same. Yeah, South Africa, 
Canada, United States. Yeah, yeah, it's the same thing over and over. So, okay, now to to just to take advantage of this chance to educate myself a little bit. Uh, it's a confusing of, topic: the efficiency, everything. Well, you know, universe. I I gotta say, I I consider myself to be a pretty smart guy, and I I read a lot, and I I think I know what's going on in the world more or less. But one area that has always really confused me is economics and this idea of growth, the idea of growth and, and the, the efficiency and increasing productivity. I've always sensed there's something at the heart of this that I just don't get, mm-hmm. you know, that and phonographs. I don't get phonographs. I do not. I, I've had people, engineers explain it to me and I cannot figure out how a needle going through a groove makes Beethoven. I just can't figure that out. I mean, people who understand it have explained it to me very patiently, but anyway, we won't get into that. Well, I have the same thing with aeroplanes. Every time I'm in an aeroplane, I just can't <laughs> believe that that thing is in the sky. Yeah. I know the mechanics, yeah. I just don't believe it. Yeah, yeah. It's like, okay, the air goes faster over the top than the bottom, and that lifts this 500-ton thing into the air? I don't think, I think so. I don't think so. It's magic. Every time I look at them, go, it ain't never going to work. It ain't never <laughs> gonna fly <laughs> yeah i can't help explain uh, the phonographs but uh, <laughs> efficiency and the link with growth yeah i'm your man okay so growth growth just means that your the the economy is churning out more it's it's moving faster and and so it's creating more products and there's more money flowing through the gear somehow mm-hmm. and this and the modern economy is constantly growing. Now, my what I've read the justification for constant growth is we need a growth of you know one and a half to two percent or something just to create jobs for the growth in population. But what you're saying is that actually productivity and higher efficiencies and so on don't create jobs necessarily. In fact, they may take away jobs. Yeah, the efficiency puts both the mandate and the ability on the economy to grow. Right. Um, basically, if you make something more efficient, and most efficiencies are a labor efficiency. You think that a um, you think that say a more efficient mining truck uh, or more efficient mine um, is every every type of efficiency even if it's a resource results in a labor efficiency and if you are more labor efficient it means that you now have to grow the economy to replace that resource uh, that that those people that are their jobs are or you have to put them in prison or you know the prison industrial complex in the u.s absorbing a lot of these people because you need a surplus of labor according mm-hmm. to this model to keep the labor price very low, right? Which is why the unions have been eviscerated in the U.S. in the last uh, 20, 30 years, right? So, so now the, your, your antidote to this was, uh, if I understood correctly, you say uh, it's not so much where the money comes from, it's where the money goes. So you increase import tariffs dramatically so you don't have cheap goods coming in from Chinese sweatshops and so on. If a country can compete on the same ethical and environmental standards, yes, then there shouldn't be any import tariffs. Right. But if we are in a race to a bottom scenario, of course there needs to be 
some type of protection for the quality of life that people have in a country. Right. It's not rocket science. So if you if you said okay, and there and I know this is what uh, various organizations are working toward. You have a common set of labor standards, of environmental standards, of human rights uh, standards, and so on. Then you can have trade between those countries because they're all sort of equal in those respects, right? The EU, for example. The EU, or, or NAFTA not counting Mexico. <laughs> so globalization, see, this is the other thing I never, I didn't understand. During this whole recent economic crisis, and they're talking about, you know, the economy needs a stimulant. So we need to pump hundreds of millions of dollars into the U.S. economy and, you know, tax breaks and so on. Uh so you pump all this money into the economy, but then the the American people go to Walmart and they buy a bunch of stuff with this extra with their tax breaks or whatever. Mm-hmm. That money goes to China. So mm-hmm. how is it stimulating the U.S. economy? Aren't we at a point now where there is no national economy anymore? I don't know the answer to that. I, I think we're at a point where there's no national economy. There's no national. I, I don't even think nation states matter anymore. I think they're artificial creations meant to distract us from what's really That's going probably on. Probably where we're going. Like football teams or rugby teams. Well, it's still. I mean, no, I'm not sure. You know, in Europe, they still do have a national identity in many ways. I mean, the whole European EU. But let me tell you something else that is kind of interesting. One of the questions that I used to get quite a bit when I used to say, "You want to solve some problems? Reduce the work week," and people would say, "But doesn't that mean that?" We make less money. And I used to tell them, sure does. But I was wrong. It goes the other way. When you look at countries that have the longest hours of work, you also have countries with the biggest discrepancy between the rich and the poor. Mm. You have the biggest divide. You see, we're in countries where people are working the longest, the longest hours. They're not forming community. They're not finding out what's going on. They have less time to hold politicians and corporations accountable. Right. Democracy is weakened. And in countries where you have shorter hours of work, I mean, like Denmark, Norway, uh, Germany, lots of these countries where people have more time to be involved in social democracy, the wages are higher and you have a more egalitarian society. Interesting that those are often considered the most efficient countries, right? German efficiency. Oh, their efficiency. But they turn their efficiency into a reduction of hours. Like Norway is two months less than here in uh, North America. And as soon as I say Norway, somebody says, oh, but that's because they have all the uh, oil and gas reserves. And I say, no, it's the other way around. You see, in Norway, they had a populace that said, no, we're not privatizing these resources. They belong to us as a society. Mm. They had the community structure to demand it. In other countries, take for Canada, I mean, the oil reserves, the land, the rest of it, but it's being privatized. Yeah. And people have to work longer hours, and they're becoming poorer. Incomes in North America are declining in other places where people have less hours of work, their incomes are increasing. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's a question of 
again, it's about community. As you say, in Norway, there was a community structure there that allowed them to make a decision as a community and to hold their leaders accountable. In the U.S., it's not only how many hours you work, it's that they hold elections on work days. What the hell is up with that? They weaken, you see, the longer your hours, you weaken democracy. Yeah, For intentionally. democracy to work, you cannot have these long hours of work. And in North America, the hours of work are increasing. Yeah. Why are they increasing at a time of increasing unemployment? Because they do not want a populace that can hold them accountable. If you have a population that can hold politicians and corporations accountable, you have an empowered populace that can make real change. Yeah. Reducing the work week is a key element in economic, uh, social justice, and environmental justice. And with that reduction in the work week, an increase in job security and in health security. Exactly. Yeah. It goes the opposite way. If you want job security, if you want health security, uh, if you want uh, social justice, democracy, work Less. Yeah, yeah. Look at Germany. So how? So what do you recommend? Uh, do you you have prescriptive uh, advice for people? People who who want to put these ideas into action? What do you recommend? They they go to their their boss and propose this, or they organize. What's the first step? Well, the first step I think is exactly as I did it. Is that I well went into my boss's office and I said. How about I don't show up here on a Friday and you don't show me, and you don't pay me? And it gave me the opportunity to get involved in community, write books, make films. Mm -hmm. And that's how my life changed. And the other way that we can all do it as a society is exactly the same. And the other way we can all do it as a society... <laughs> I need you to go watch a movie. I'm so busy. Conrad's being uh, attacked by his son. Yeah, I have a five-year-old. Say hi to everybody. He's been good for almost an hour now. Yeah. That's a record <laughs> That's for him. a record. All right. Well, we can wrap this up. So so you're, you're closing. Let's uh, work less party, which and you've got the uh, workersoftheworldrelax.org where people can see your, your book, correct? Yeah, workersoftheworldrelax.org. You can download the book for free, Alternatives to Growth. Uh, that has all my propaganda and lies in it and bad spelling. <laughs> and there are a few short films that I made there as well. Yeah, I, I saw one of the films this morning. Okay. Uh, Mika, I need you to go upstairs. I'm busy. Oh. You heard All right, well, well, we'll wrap it up here. It's an organic time limit. You said, baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you wanna say You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Why don't you let it out to play?
Smoke alarms will dance into the ground.